Hello, I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theater writer and dramaturg. And I'm Jen Uphoff-Gray, founder and artistic director of Forward Theater Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And this is Theater Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theater from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insights into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theater in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 98 of Theater Forward. And for this episode, we are revisiting one of our favorite segments, The Play That Stays. And for these episodes, we invite artists to come and tell us about a particular production that they were impacted by. We love hearing these stories and we hope you will too. I'm so pleased to introduce our first guest on this this episode. Jacob Jansen is the artistic director at Third Avenue Playworks in Sturgeon Bay. Um, and I am still coming off the high of having seen Jacob's direction of uh, of a play for world premiere Wisconsin. I carry my heart with me, carry your heart with me by Jennifer Blackmore starring uh, Karen Estrada. Um, it's a play I had read a few times to do preview articles. I had no idea how amazing it was, but that just speaks to what happens when you have a really good director uh, working with a really wonderful actor. Jacob, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So do you want to share with us the the play, the, one of the plays that got you to the point where I got to see you do this incredible work a week ago. Absolutely. So actually it sort of speaks to the work of the director um, because the play that stays with me, that echoes through my heart, right, um, is the 2009 production, uh, Bob Falls 2009 production of Desire Under the Elms that they did at the Goodman and that eventually made its way to Broadway where I saw it. Um, I was a very young person when I saw it. Uh, I had just finished my BFA in acting at UW-Stevens Point, and we were going to New York for our showcase. And um, one of the shows that we saw was uh, Desire Under the Elms. And, you know, at that point, I had been an actor and interested in pursuing that life. And um, But I had gotten some inklings that maybe direction would be something that I'd be interested in. And I had tried my hand at it very, very poorly uh, in undergrad. Um, but then I saw that production. And um, for your listeners, uh, the first moment of that play was uh, truly mind blowing, like a magnificent uh, feat of direction and design that absolutely changed my perspective on the work of the director and made me need to change the course of my life and my career. Um, not that I'm going to give anything away because it was literally the first moment of this play. But what you saw when you sat down in that theater um, was, of course, they played the lobby music. You're sitting there, you know, going through your playbill, whatever, doing what you do. Um, the house goes dark, goes to full blackout. There are no lights on in that uh, auditorium. And there's, a, of course, a gorgeous Broadway, you know, red uh, velvet grand drape hanging there. You're in blackout, but it's, it's such a short blackout. Um, or it's a long enough blackout that your eyes take the time to adjust. So your pupils have fully dilated, but you don't quite see the fact that there is a giant white psych, a giant white curtain right behind the grand drape. And then they fly out the main big red velvet drape and they hit that big white curtain with every light they have in the house and they blind you. So you cover your eyes and turn your head away from the stage. And by the time you turn your head back, 
what you see is perhaps the most incredible scene picture I have ever seen in my life. Uh, because what there was, uh, was floating over the stage, a full house suspended on hemp ropes that were probably, I don't know, three feet in diameter. And it slowly rotates down into space. A full house. I'm not just talking like a small house. It was a two-story house that you could walk up inside of. And the rest of the stage was covered in uh, gigantic boulders, right? Like three-meter boulders. It was absolutely stunning. Um, the design, uh, Walt Spangler did it. Um, it's like one of the great, I think, one of the great Broadway designs of like the, you know, early 21st century. And the performances that were at the center of it. Brian Dennehy playing Ephraim Cabot, uh, Carlo Vigino uh, playing Abby, you know, Boris McGiver, Pablo Schreiber. I mean, it was like this just absolutely like stacked cast. And then the play itself is this slightly strange piece. It's O'Neill. Um, it's, it's like got this poetic thing going on. It's his more expressionistic work. It's not his like pure realism. And there's like these big poetic moments and they did this incredible editing of it that made it really vibrate. And you could feel the kind of like, um, the, the pent up rage, pent up like lust. Uh, and it just made this thing crackle. And that scenic design was the thing that sets you up. And, um, it's something that I've carried with me ever since, because, uh, I know the value of that first moment when you walk into a room. Right now, I don't always have a great grand drape and all of the technical capacities that they have um, at the Goodman or on Broadway. But I do know that when you create a uh, something, a scenic element, a design and the audience walks in, you are starting the play before the play begins. And so you have to take care of that moment. And they did such an incredible moment of shocking you into the experience. Um, and I was very fortunate years later when I was in grad school that I got to meet Bob Falls and I actually got to work at his theater a couple of times. And um, I got to talk to him about that production and how important that was to me because I really was, I was going to be an actor and I was going to do the whole thing. And I saw that play and I went, Oh yeah, well I need to do this. I need to find out more about this and how he did this and how he created that experience because it was absolutely stunning. Um, and, you know, Bob Falls has been a hero of mine ever since. And um, then later, you know, I got the chance to work at his theater on, um, I carry, uh, sorry, on uh, A View from the Bridge that Evo Von Hova directed. I got to assist Evo on it. And again, a similar production that had the same kind of shock value. Um, and the best part about that was sitting at a table after a preview with Bob Falls to my left and Evo Von Hova to the, my right. And, and like, you know, Bob and I are geeking out about this play that we're working on. And there I am with like this like hero mentor of mine and like his hero across the table and uh, all talking about these three different productions, you know, um, some of his work that he had done at the Toniel Group and, you know, Bob's production of, um, you know, uh, Desire under the Elms. And then this production that we're all working on, A View from the Bridge, which is also like stunning work. Um, so... I, for me, I mean, maybe I'm biased, but I, I really do love the work of the director. And when a director has that kind of mastery of the experience um, and a deep understanding of what it is that we're doing to an audience, because it is experiential storytelling and it utilizes 
um, you know, all of these components, the sort of the genius of the writer, the genius of the performer, but then the genius of these designers, these people who create sculpture in light and sound that envelops a performer to like move inside of an audience. It's like really exciting stuff. Um, and that is the, like the, absolutely the inflection point for me in my life as an artist. What a fabulous story, Jacob. Uh, you know, I can remember my predecessor at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Jacob, um, Damian mm -hmm. Jakes, saw that production in Chicago and was walking on the street afterwards and, and sent me, uh, this was pretext, but you mm -hmm. know, sent me later a, 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 an email saying, I didn't even know where I was. I was actually lost yeah. in because I was just wandering around. And he said, Mike, you have to get down here and see this immediately. And I I always listened to my mentors and I did. Um, and and yeah, I mean, Bob Falls for me too. I, I knew there was a reason you and I connected so well last week, Jacob. I mean, just, I feel the same way. I, I was just bawling at his cherry orchard, which is his sort of swan song that he just did, which was, you know, all about in the way he framed it, you know, appreciating this space in which he has worked when it's when it's time to leave it. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just such a, I love hearing um, I love hearing stories of other directors. You know, what's what's the show you saw or the experience you had that made you go, oh, that's what a director can do. Yeah. And how um, how life and career changing that can be. I love it. I mean, I had very, very similar experiences because when I was an undergrad, I was in Cambridge and, you know, the American Repertory Theater was there. And mm -hmm. this was during Bob Brewstein's yeah. um, era of just bringing in all of these mind blowing Andre Serban and Ann Bogart yeah. and just all of these yep. directors that even though that's not really my style now right. in my career as a director, but to see the breadth of of what directing could be and what that kind of storytelling could accomplish was, um, yeah, it was transformative. Well, and really, I think I can, well, I've already written about it and this is, this podcast probably will go up after I carry your heart with me closes, but, um, in terms of being working with the budget that you have, that is what you gave me, Jacob, you and Alex Polson, your scenic designer, in terms of what I felt when I walked into your space last Friday and I saw this set, and it just immediately before I even saw the amazing things that were, were going to be done with light with it, it grabbed me because it was a metaphor for so much of what the play uh, it, it is about. And, and it did exactly what you're talking about in terms of making you pay attention even before you're ostensibly supposed to be paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Alex Polson was a scenic designer for I Carry Your Heart With Me and Colin Garansky did the lights and I think they did incredible work together. Um, and I should also say Brian Grimm did our compositions. Um, was a phenomenal sound designer and composer. Um, so I'm very fortunate to have a really great team of artists to work with. Um, but again, what we were thinking about is when you have an audience walking into the room, because we have a, essentially a little um, end stage theater, your audience is starting the experience well before the show starts. Mm -hmm. So how do you load them up with some feeling and what we have is essentially like this sort of sterile um deposition room that feels very claustrophobic and there's there's no movement in it no movement really possible and that is a sort of a necessary component of that play because the play is an in, it's all about the interior memory life of esther shannon the woman at the center of this play um 
And if the world was too open and too dynamic, you wouldn't feel as trapped as she does. And you need that. So that way, in the moment when she sort of achieves liftoff and liberation from that feeling, you get to go there at the audience. Otherwise, it won't work for you. Um, so we were very, very careful to um, think about how do you create that experience for the audience through, you know, the scenic design that we had. Um, and that the motion could happen in sound and light, right? That's where you can really bend the space. So Colin gave us some really gorgeous, you know, uh, difference with, you know, shifting light and being able to paint the room very differently as, you know, time would go. Um, and, but we felt that the room itself had to stay static. Um, and uh, I think it's very effective, very, very effective. Yeah. Well, I love, I love hearing about that production. I love hearing about the ways in which it was inspired by your formative experience with the play that stays for you. Um, Jacob, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is Laura Braza. Laura is an accomplished freelance director and the associate artistic director of Milwaukee Rep. She's also a member of the World Premier Wisconsin leadership team. And I'm so looking forward to hearing about your play that stays, Laura. Yeah, I can't wait to tell you about it. So my play that stays is Passing Strange on Broadway. Uh, it was one of my favorite theatrical experiences. Uh, when my parents asked me what I wanted for a graduation present, I said, tickets to Passing Strange. Um, and so it was this really incredible experience because I went with my parents. Uh, and it's very much a show about growing up and identity and finding yourself in your art. Um, but it's also in a sort of like classically stew way, this beautiful communal experience, right? So it tells the story of this uh, young black man who is growing up in, uh, I believe, Southern California. And he goes to college and he goes to Amsterdam and he sort of travels the world and then comes back home and figures out who he is. Um, and throughout that, they do all of these wildly theatrical things that I thought were brilliant. They have six actors on stage that play all of the parts. They play the people he, meet, he meets in Amsterdam and they play the uh, people at the Baptist mass that he goes to when he's a teenager. And so it already engages you in this way that is invites the audience to sort of say, all right, I'm part of this imaginative journey, right? Like you're not gonna take me all the way to the Southern Baptist fashion show as they call it, um, but you will get me enough of the way there that I get to participate in imagining what this might be. Um, and it's so joyful and inviting and evocative in that way. Uh, and I just remember being absolutely bowled over by that. I just graduated with a double major in English and drama. And I was certain that what I was going to do was come back to Wisconsin and teach English at a high school level. That's That was my plan. And... Um, that didn't work out for me because in part I saw Passing Strange and was like, this is this is amazing. This art can really do something. Um, and there was something really magical too about the makeup of the crowd there. Like I'm sitting next to my my 
older white father who is enjoying this as much as so many of the other audience members there and really relating to it. Um, and I just, I thought it was really beautiful. I especially loved that it was all about trying on different aesthetics for size. Um, so he, uh, at one point, the main character has a very sort of uh, postmodern aesthetic and a very avant-garde aesthetic. And then at one point he's like, I want to do film noir. Let's look at that. And so there's a song in that style. And that feels to me like the first 10 years of my directing career. Um, where I was just trying to figure out where I lived in all of it. Um, but I don't think I've ever seen a production that had so many things go right, right? The the cast was amazing and engaging. And if they didn't love each other, it sure felt like they did. <laughs> and, the, and they were, it, more importantly than that, they were up on stage making art together. And there was like a certain majesty to that you know there was there there was a certain sort of holiness to that um and then it was funny and irreverent and also touched the sort of deepest parts of my soul and uh and managed to be both of those things i feel like that's constantly a needle i'm trying to tre thread when i'm directing productions right how can this be deeply important and also hilarious and we're all on this blue marble that we call earth and we're spending some time making theater why not uh, nailed it. It nailed that. The lighting design was brilliant. The music was so good. Um, and the journey of this one young man as a lens to see all of our journeys was such a really brilliant way to enter the world as a professional theater maker. Even though when I started the show, I didn't think that's how I was entering the world. I thought this is my goodbye to New York theater and then I'll go be an English teacher. And then I left and two months later, I was assistant directing a production back in New York and I lived there for another 15 years. So it really had, uh, it really had an impact on me. So that's my play that stays. I love it so much. I love it so much. and. I just I, I so agree with you, Laura, about that 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 needle that we all try to thread of making something impactful and enjoyable, right? To make it this incredibly uplifting experience, even if it's something that's not an uplifting story, you want the experience of seeing it totally to be totally. uplifting. It's it's the magical thing of of why it should never be a movie. Although the Passing Strange movie is also excellent, but for different <laughs> reasons, right? Like I always ask myself when I'm directing a play, why could this never happen on film? Why does this mm -hmm. have to happen in a live space with breathing bodies? And I've never seen a show that answered it better than that. Well, I love too the way um, what you're describing, I think is is something that show has in common with some of the best pieces in that it is so specific yes. that it becomes universal. Yes. And I, it's brilliant. I it's it's so wonderful how nitty gritty it gets on who this guy is and the kind of music he likes and the, you know, experiences he had at church. And they're very different than the experience I had at church, but like very similar, lots of lots of through lines there. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's a it's a piece I always think about when I'm like. What are we doing here? I'm like. <laughs> You know, I, I have a lot of like, I got to 
do a budget. And there's so many other logistical parts of making theater. So much of theater is like moving one thing from one location to another Mm -hmm. and hanging it up and lighting it up or building it in or whatever. And uh, it is easy in those moments to forget about the magic. And I cannot think about that play without remembering how magical theater can be. Well, and remembering that, like, and you said it so well, and Jen's amplified it. I mean, to, to keep hold of that sense of theatricality, but also hold on to the heart. And what I worry about is that sometimes theater tries to be cinematic, um, and and loses in it getting it gets lost in sort of technical details that, frankly, we're not experts in in the same way that movie makers are. God, did we oh, all learn yeah. that during the pandemic? There's <laughs> other things that we do really well, and part of them is bringing heart. In a way, I mean, that piece made me cry. And you're same for me. I'm nothing about my life experience at all, but it felt like it was talking to me anyway. And theater and the magic of theater made that happen. I mean, it's awesome. Laura, what what made you, before you went and had this transformative experience, what made you say, I want this as my graduation gift? What was it about the show in terms oh. of the way it was being marketed or the way what you had heard about it that made you want to see it? Do you remember? You know, it's, okay, so- <laughs> I went to drama school in New York City, which means that everyone has a million opinions about everything. And the very cool thing when you're 21 years old is that opinion to be negative, right? Right. Um, so, you know, anything would be on Broadway. I remember seeing um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Kathleen Turner and Bill Irwin when I first got to school. And I was like, this is incredible. And then I went to my first class and everyone <laughs> I saw that. It was fine. I have some questions about how to handle the Albi text. And I was like, oh, I really had a good night at the theater. Like, I don't know how to play this game. Okay. Um, and it it would drive me nuts all through school. I was like, I don't know if this is a community I want to be a part of if people can make such big things, big lifts, and all you get is, well, they didn't quite do this thing right. And then this show, every person I talked to that saw it was like, you have to get a ticket. You should go. Hmm. You have to go. And that was not the vibe in theater school. The vibe was let's be cooler than the art that people are making. And uh, and I loved the idea that there was a piece of art that was getting people excited enough that they were willing to let that bit of ego that they needed go and just see the piece and then mm. kind of espouse it. Beautiful. I know that vibe so well too. <laughs> right? it's, it's a, it takes a while. It's like, it's, it's a, it's a tricky trap, but, mm-hmm. but it yeah. was, it was a fun one. It like every single person who saw it was like, Oh no, that was very good. That was very, very good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's a nice reminder. There, there's no such thing as bad art. There's art. That's not your cup of tea. That's exactly right. That's exactly. Which is a completely different thing from being bad. Yes. And, uh, you know, you're an associate artistic director. I'm an artistic director. We have those conversations all the time with people. All the time. All <laughs> time. Well, you know, fascinating. So when we did Much Ado this year, we did a sensory friendly slash all access performance. And mm-hmm. the question is so interesting because I spent, you know, six months preparing for this play that I'd had in my heart for how many years? And then uh, a month rehearsing it and a week and a half in tech. And then we came to the theater on one day with a totally different goal, which was how can we make this for this audience? Um, And the idea that what you're talking about, Jen, it is so true. There's not bad theater. 
there, but it is different. And if you can be specific about your goals, you will get a different product that is for different people. And that's kind of amazing. Like, again, that's why we should do what we do and not make network television, which is brilliant in a bunch of different ways, but like doesn't have the chance to be so specific that it's universal in the moment when you're breathing with other people in the space. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh my gosh, Laura, thank you so much for sharing that, that story. I'm inspired and delighted. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm sort of tempted to say that Sherry Williams Pinnell needs no introduction. I mean, a native Milwaukee who has worked everywhere um, in Milwaukee, um, not just as an actor and a singer. Um, she's also an accomplished and amazing playwright. And most importantly for, for me, somebody who I've seen with other people and in my life has been a mentoring t- kind of inspiration in terms of how we can be with each other. Um, as people. And she sent us right before we started her story, a picture of herself at three years old, which is just so incredibly amazing um, and relates in some way that Sherry's now going to share with us to her story. Sherry, welcome. Thank you so much, Mike. And and I'm so glad to to be here with Scott and Jen as well with um, the, the play that stays. And, and actually, it's not a, a play. In fact, the, the, the memory is kind of fuzzy. I'll, I'll just tell you. Uh, I'll, I'll set this up. My sister, who was my introduction to musical theater and opera, is almost 20 years older than I. So a treat was being able to go into her room and she would turn on her record player and she had these records, these wonderful recordings of like Porgy and Bess and um, Carmen Jones, Oklahoma, West Side Story, Carousel. And then of course she had her Harry Belafonte collection with kisses all. She put lipstick on it, kisses all over it. I was like, Ugh! and <laughs> And so, and and she had Odetta, and so I heard, and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Pete Seeger. So I heard folk music, uh, wonderful, the the opera, the, the, she had Madama Butterfly with the picture of Leontine Price. I I used to stare at that photo, and because I was like, what is this? (laughs) But I love what I was hearing. And when uh, she was one of the first Black graduates of Cardinal Stritch, when it was a women's teacher's college, and they had just moved out to Yates Road. And she and another woman, Patricia Ann Williams, both of them had the same names, three names, but they were the first uh, Black students at um, at Cardinal Stritch. And Cardinal Stritch had a fine arts program. And they did a production of Cinderella. Now I remember singing, I remember some dancing, but I don't know if it was the Rogers and Hammerstein Cinderella or if it was a Cinderella with music in it, but she took me and I just remember the magic, the, the, the costumes, the, the lights, the, the, the music, the beautiful Cinderella, the beautiful princess and, you know, the tale from from rags to riches, sort of a tale magical and a fairy godmother, the magic of it all. But also at the end of the, the production and they were having the receiving line and all of us went through the congratulate and so on. Cinderella took off her crown and placed it on my head. And then 
Well, I didn't want to give it back. So I ran away and I ran down the stairs and somehow I ran to this room that had a piano in it, a baby grand piano. And I went under and I hid under the piano and and they couldn't find me like for 30 minutes or, or maybe longer. So my sister. I embarrassed my sister and, and but everybody's looking for me. And so they find me and my sister explains to me, this is not your crown. It belongs to Cinderella and you have to give Cinderella back her crown. And I cried and I, I didn't want to give Cinderella back her crown, but I had to give her her crown. And boy, my sister was really upset with me. <laughs> And we had to take the bus there. So that was a long bus ride home. <laughs> Sherry, I'm not supposed to have favorites, but I think you just uh, won yeah. for my favorite play that stays story <laughs> I've ever heard. But I, well, but and it's, it, it, it's the Cinderella story, right? You ran away. Story is, it's awesome. <laughs> you had to get turned back into a pumpkin and coach and the whole nine yards. Oh my God. No, it's true. It's true. But I tell you, uh, I, yeah, <laughs> but I fell in love with musical theater from there. And after that, you know, when we go to the movies and we see Mary Poppins in that one sitting with Mary Poppins, I was like a sponge. I came home and I sang just a spoonful of sugar, helps the medicine go down and chim chim churee and feed the birds. And I would, I, I would probably didn't have the words correct, but I can remember the melodies. I have a thing for melodies. And I put on, you know, a show. And when my, like I said, my, my, brothers and sister are 16, 18, and 20 years older than I am. So when they would bring home dates, if they could sit through my through my performances, they said, okay, this is a good person. They're okay. They, they, you know, they 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 passed the test. But if they found themselves bored or get rid of this little kid, mm-mm, you weren't invited back a second time. <laughs> I have very similar memories of being a young child and visiting my New York family. And we, my grandparents took us to see Barnum on Broadway. And we were in the front row with all the confetti on us. And then yes. we got the recording on a little tape cassette. And I remember sitting with my poor uncle, who was only like 14 years older than me and was there with the date. I remember sitting, plopping down in between the two of them with my little tape recorder being like, and now we're going to listen to the whole thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and it wasn't just singing. I, I had dance steps. I would I, I didn't know anything about, you know, the moment before, but I created something, a scene. <laughs> so I, I fell in love with musical theater from this experience and I and with opera as as well. Uh, because of of my sister, you know, sitting there. And of course, my mother was my first outside music teacher. Uh, as um, I remember as a very young girl singing, Oh, my papa. She mm. talked, Oh, my papa. And Jesus loves me. And he's got the whole world in his hands. And before I sleep at night, you have to do, I have to sing these songs. And she would harmonize with me because I could hold my own part. Mm. So I, I remember like being two, I think maybe two years old and, and really being able to, to sing independently. And my mother was an alto and I was a soprano and I 
you know, we, we harmonize together. <laughs> I just love, I, I mean, I, I, I wish I had known this story when I went to see the beautiful musical, which you're one of the co-creators, Zuri's Crown, the work, you know, the uh, Bronzeville Arts Ensemble, which I, you know, is you're the artistic director. Um, contribution to world premiere Wisconsin, because of course this is all about taking a fairy tale and, and making it your, your own, which is exactly what you've just described doing with Mary Poppins, exactly what you described doing by taking that crown. It's, it's such a beautiful way to sort of close the circle on, on that. Um, and I guess I should say for our listeners that didn't see it, Zuri's crown takes the Rapunzel fairy tale and owns it uh, as an experience that is, as, as Sherry had said to me in another context, it's universal, but it's also very specifically talking about the experience of black women and their hair um, in, in an era where there's still discrimination uh, re related to that. And to sort of see that related to something going all the way back when you were three, you really <laughs> do love those fairy tales. <laughs> I do. I do. And, and this is really going to date me. And it's OK. I could say today's my birthday. I'm 64 years old. I say I'm 64. I'm ready for more good things of life. Yes. But um, when I was growing up, I had also my own little record player and it had these platters that were red and yellow. These are Peter Pan records. And I also had a recording, uh, which had um, Captain Kangaroo. I went to the animal fair. The birds and the beasts were there. Yes. The big baboon at the light of the moon was combing his auburn hair. You know, all I had, and I learned to sing by listening to this. And then I had a recording of Jeanette McDonald and Eddie Fisher. Um, Eddie, well, anyway, they were singing the the uh, it was one of these you had a booklet and you put the record on and it was the story of Cinderella I love Cinderella and and the the fairy godmother when you turn the page for the next part of the the story she'd say hocus pocus timini mocus and that was and you turn the page and then you would read follow along with <laughs> Jeanette McDonald and Eddie Nelson. Eddie Nelson, uh, that's what it was. Oh Lord, that's so long ago. But so I learned that, and and I tell you, the first rec recordings I purchased with my own money was um, <laughs> Doctor Doolittle, Rex Harrison, and Samantha Eggerts, and um, uh, Leslie Bruce, and anyway. And then I also had I purchased the Jackson Five. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <Money>. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, a love of 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 the the pop American music and then the the musicals. Mm. Sherry, I just love the, the way this story is is bringing, as Mike said, so much resonance into all of the beautiful work that you do here for theaters all over Southern Wisconsin and and the kinds of experiences I have seen you create for audience members of all ages, um, and and being able to tie that to this experience you had as such a young child is it's it's so beautiful thank you <laughs> thank you for sharing that gorgeous yeah. story I, I thank you for birthday. the opportunity oh thank you and, and 
Thank you so much. And I have to tell you, when you said backgrounds, I'm looking at the posters and the wonderful collection of books and the art. Um, this is even as hard as COVID was. It gave us an opportunity through distance to get to know each other in a in a more personal way because you learn so much about a person by by what the beauty that they surround themselves with. And I'm and I'm looking silent sky and the books and what is the, I want to say thank you for this peek into your wonderful world and thank you for the opportunity to share these memories. Well, thank you, thank Sherry. you, Sherry. Up next is Deanie Valone. Deanie is a freelance dramaturg and spent many years working at Milwaukee Rep. She's also the first person to join me on World Premier Wisconsin's leadership team, for which I am incredibly grateful. And Deanie, I am so looking forward to hearing the story of your play that stays. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Jen and Mike and Forward Theater. Um, I'll be honest, this was a little bit tricky. I, you know, I sort of narrowed it down and then was really struggling between a couple of shows because, um, you know, different plays stick with you for different reasons. Um, but I ended up, uh, the, the show that I want to talk about today is, um, the production of the ocean at the end of the lane that I saw at the national theater in December of 2019. Um, and if that title is familiar to you in a different way, it's because it's adapted from the novel of the same name by Neil Gaiman. Um, who is known for uh, quite a few works, including uh, American Gods, and uh, which uh, has a scene set in Wisconsin, and um, Good Omens and the Sandman series. Um, but this is uh, a show that um, is very close to my heart because I'm a big fan of his work, but also a big fan of um, the theater that, you know, we I don't think we get to see a lot of theater for um, all ages, but for adults on stage, that is genre, um, especially fantasy, sci-fi, um, sort of uh, magical, especially on uh, a stage as big and renowned as the National. And then, of course, the show uh, went to the West End after the pandemic and has garnered lots of attention and awards. Um, but all of that is not necessarily why it stuck with me. Um, I, uh, so the, the story is it follows a man who goes back to his childhood home for his father's funeral and, um, basically jumps back in time to when he was 12 years old living there and met, uh, made a, a friend of a little girl named Letty and, um, and basically, uh, magic and mayhem ensued. Um, but really it is a, it is a story, it's a coming of age story, but a coming of age story in which a young boy is reckoning with his relationship with his father and his parents, um, unpacking a lot of trauma and grief over the loss of his mother. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, having to, um, understanding what it means to be courageous in the face of, of something that you don't understand, um, which I think is a lot of what growing up looks like. And um, and also, you know, it's a show that is has a lot of magic, um, a lot of the supernatural. And so also the way in which the story is looking at um, how our capacity for understanding magic and our our imaginations um, shifts and often diminishes as we age. 
um, and what that means for how we um, understand ourselves and our place in the world and how we cope with big emotions, both good and bad. Um, so really, I think it's a story of um, of friendship and facing difficult things um, uh, with other people. Um, so I, I think that the story is something that really spoke to me um, and is really interesting to think that like I saw it pre-pandemic and it'd be very interesting now to see it post-pandemic um, and how it would hit differently. Um, but also like it just seeing this show on stage was just such an experience. Um, it's an adaptation. And I think that there, I think there's a lot of plays out there that are adapted from novels that uh, maybe should have just stayed as novels. I, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that I, I talk a lot about adaptation in theater, I have in other um, conversations and, and really just being thoughtful about like, why does this need to be on stage? Like, what about this story feels inherently theatrical or it, something new about the story can be revealed through a theatrical performance? And I really think that um, this is a case where they picked the right book to adapt. Um, a lot of Neil Gaiman's works have been adapted mostly to like TV. Um, and I think about those ones um, that have been very successful, but I just, I'm not sure any of those that have, you know, been made into TV shows would do well on the stage. And not to say that I don't think the ocean at the end of the lane would be a good movie or TV show, but I think that there is something about the fact that it is a, a memory, um, it's a memory story told through the point of view of a 12 year old um, that there is a lot more um, that there's just like a lot more to play with there on the stage and they really leaned into um, the strengths of, of theater to tell this story. Um, the, the, the soundscaping and the, the, the oral storytelling was really beautiful in this. The lighting was just really extraordinary. Um, but really the, the things that stood out for me were the, um, the staging and the puppetry. So the show was done in I'm trying to remember. I think it was like semi, it was a thrust, a very deep thrust stage, um, like three quarter round. And I was sitting on the side, uh, which was like the best spot I found out later. Um, and I know that the tour is, it, they, it goes around, but I think it's very well suited to be as in the round as possible. Um, and the, the, the element that really stood out were the puppets. So in the book, there are a lot of creatures and monsters. And what I really loved about what Neil Gaiman did is that his descriptions of them were, it, it was the kind of description where you're like, I can't quite picture this. And that's even scarier than if you had described it really fully. And so when you have monsters like that, that are um, so exquisitely written, it is a little bit like, well, how do you capture this? Um, and how do you let the audience um, be able to still use their imaginations? And so I think that the the puppet work that they did on this show was absolutely top notch. Um, really, there's there's not, a, I've tried to do a little bit of research because I really wanted to know how they did it. And there's not like a ton of um, information about it, but like the use of found materials, um, the way that the puppets like are constantly kind of shifting um, form as they go um, was really extraordinary. And of course, the use of other theatrical elements like lighting and that so that you never quite got to see them fully, I think really helped with 
um, the tension and the atmosphere and the horror of them. Um, I definitely remember, so sitting on the side and there were sort of these, I guess they were bombs maybe, or like sort of alleys. And I'm watching the stage and I just like out of the corner of my eye saw something move and I turned and this huge creature just walked right past me because it was right up against the stage. And I'm telling you, it was like, <laughs> it was fantastic. It wasn't an immersive show, but it felt like an immersive show. Um, and it was, you know, being able to see that craftsmanship as a theater artist and recognize that, but also be totally in the moment as like a kid being like, oh my gosh, you know, I think that the wonder of that is something that um, I don't think that we get a lot in theater for adult audiences. And again, in theater on stages that are doing, you know, Shakespeare and classic dead white authors. Um, so I, I really think like this show's ability to capitalize on the strengths of theater to capture like the imagination of children and make it a story that felt exciting and thrilling and engaging, but also like deeply unpacking these like really big kind of amorphous themes. Um, it just did it really, really successfully and in a way that like obviously has very much stuck with me. And I've tried to go see the show again. Uh, um, and unfortunately, uh, wasn't able to catch it when last time I was in London, but I am hoping to go see it again this summer. And uh, I think that if somebody asked me, like, what would be your dream show to work on? This would be the show I'd want to work on. Um, so I've been rambling a lot and going all over the place. So I'm going <laughs> to stop there. And I'm like, oh, no, have I been talking for 10 minutes? No, beautiful. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that's that's the sh that's the show. <laughs> You've made me so sad that I haven't been able to see that. I know the book. I've read the book. So now this is going on my bucket list of shows to oh, see. Yes, yeah. you must. You must. So I'm intrigued, Dini, by what you were saying about the experience, which you will have hopefully this summer of pre and post pandemic. Do you think that we're in a moment where maybe we don't take whatever magic exists in the world and on stage as for granted as we once did? Do you think people are hungry for it or open to it now in a way that maybe feels different in terms of what we can put on stage? Or do you still feel that it's the, you know, third cousin, fourth removed from what you normally see in theater? I mean, I think that's such a great question. I, you know, I, I read a lot and I'm in a lot of circles of, of um, folks who are in the, book publishing industry. And, you know, you see the, like the trends of, of fantasy and sci-fi literature. And it's like, people are consuming this a lot. Yeah. And I think that it is a missed opportunity not to um, be putting more of that on the stage. Um, and I, I think that people do want escapism in a way. Um, you know, it's, it's the reason why you know, uh, jukebox musicals are so popular and why like just fun Agatha Christie murder mysteries are so popular and Shakespeare comedies are so popular. I think that we, we do want an escape, but I think something like the ocean at the end of the lane is an opportunity and, and shows like that are an opportunity to, um, wrestle with these things that we're still dealing with. And these emotions we're still, still dealing with in a way that is not so um, 
immediately realistic and reflective of what we're we're actually going through, right? Like that's the power of fantasy and sci-fi and magic is to be able to give us give us a, a, a medium through which we can process these heavy emotions. But I think to to kind of go back to your question of I don't know. I don't necessarily I I don't necessarily see a trend towards doing more work like this, but for example, when again when I was in London, um my neighbor Totoro, which is an adaptation of the um uh, Miyazaki film was adapted for the stage and I could not get a ticket to save my life. It was completely sold mm-hmm. out. Yeah. And then I went I went back again to London. It was completely sold. Like I just could not get a ticket. And that's a little bit more of a uh, like a, it was a film a little bit more for younger children, so I can see how it's a family film, but it's deeply beloved by people of my age and and older generations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I I really think that there is a missed like I think people want this. I think people enjoy this, and again they enjoy um, the wonder and the theatricality and the magic of being able to see this on stage. It is a like testament to the artists involved, and I think that is equally thrilling you know, to the story itself. And so I don't know, I personally think that, again, I think it's a missed opportunity not to be um, doing more work of this ilk. Yeah. And I think we see so much more of it happening in Europe than we do, than we do here. Yeah. Um, And I wish um, more of that would come over, but they're also very expensive. Yeah. We don't have a lot of government government subsidies. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's it exactly. Right. Like these shows, are often large cast. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you have puppets, you have a lot of puppeteers. The I know that Ocean at the End of the Lane had a like ma- magician, magic consultant on the show. And, you know, until US theater is better funded, yeah, it's it's hard to do shows of that size and scope. Yeah. Well, I I don't want to wind up on a, you know, a, a dour note <laughs> yeah. about the horrible uh, lack of arts funding in the U.S. I think I want to just focus on that mm. magical moment for you of sitting in that mm-hmm. theater and seeing that creature go right past you. And mm. that that image is going to stick with me for quite some time. It, it certainly stuck with me in uh, in a really exciting way. It's made me you know, again, it's, it's like when I walked out of that space, it lit a fire and I was like this, this, I want to make this show. How do I make shows like this? It was yeah. very exciting. I love that. Well, thank you for sharing your play thank that you, stays Dini. with us. Dini. Thank you so much for having me. And we will say that that is all for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest and America. I'm Jen Upoff Gray. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced, as always, by Scott Hayden. And you can follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook and Twitter at Theater Forward, as always, spelled with an ER. And if you enjoy this podcast and enjoy being able to use ER when you're uh, searching for us, you can (laughs) talk about both by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in and leaving us a fantastic review. We are so grateful to have you listening, and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.